welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hey, it is good to be back in the saddle. Haven't preached in two weeks. I've got a lot pent up. It's going to be a long one. I'm just letting you know. It's good to be with you today, and I sincerely mean that. I did miss you. Um, I did enjoy time with our family, and we spent some time at the beach, got some rest in, hugged our babies, hugged our kids, and, uh, and now we are here today, and we're here together in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And we're actually starting a brand new series today called Blessed, and we are going to be in the book of Ephesians for quite some time, actually several months, but it's going to be broken up into three different, uh, basically three different series titles, because thematically there's three key things that Paul talks about, and he unpacks in this letter to the church in Ephesus, and we're going to get to that eventually, but I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is back to school time around here. Anybody excited about back to school time? Parents? Parents, yeah, just parents. I love it. Parents are like, send them to school. Send them. Send them. Uh, Hey, so it is back to school time, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we asked a couple weeks ago for pictures that would be from your time in high school or your graduation pictures, and some of you so boldly sent those pictures in. And during pre-service, they were scrolling. Hopefully, you saw those. But at the end of the service, Brian is going to unveil those. You need to stay, stay attentive until the end of the service because we have a slideshow with those people who submitted pictures with their name on it, and you can guess to see who it is. So it's going to be good fun. Um, and some of these, like, I love you all. Some of you, I have no idea who you are in these pictures. I'm just saying, <laughs> no clue. Some of you are just like, yes, I know you. And you're, I'm like, I'm not even sure you go to church here. So you'll find it out. <laughs> you'll find it out. So... Brian's gonna is gonna uh, do the unveil of that at the end of the service, and uh, and that's gonna be great. But here's what I would like to do right now in the interim: if you are an educator in any of the area school systems, or also if you're part of administration or you're part of the school board, I would ask that you would stand, if you would please, right now. If you're an educator, if we have any in the room, anyone? Yes. You guys can stay standing. You guys can stay standing. Just, I'm not going to embarrass you um, any more than you standing in public, but at church. But I just want you to know and single you out. We so appreciate what you do and the difficult place that you find yourself in working with students, no matter, or with kids, no matter what it is that you're doing, how you're participating in that. You are on the front line, and you have such an important role within the next generation. And I just want you to know uh, that. We love you, we care for you, and I'm actually going to pray over you at the end of the service, if the Lord wills, and if I remember. So now you guys can have a seat. Thank you. Thank you. So here we go. So we're going to start our series, and it is on a topic that many of us find ourselves in, um, and we may not say, oh, well, yeah, I just want to know what, it, what does it mean to be blessed, but I want you to know that we're no different than the people in the New Testament or Old Testament where we, we do things to attempt to get God's blessing. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that is, I'm not going to unpack all the things that we do to try and get God's blessing, 
Instead, I'm going to show you scripturally what is the true blessing that God talks about, how to get it, and also I want to talk about historically why this letter is so important in the day and age that we live in. In the church in Ephesus, that city was a very influential city. It wasn't influential in, the, in a sense like a county seat in, in rural Illinois, not in that sense, more so influential like you would consider a New York or an L.A., or perhaps Chicago. It was influential in that way. The city was large. A lot of people lived there. The population was enormous. And they had this temple in Ephesus that people would come to. It was one of the seven wonders of the world that people would go to, and they would seek to just try and go to the Temple of Artemis, and that's what the title was. It was the Temple of Artemis. And they would go there striving for a blessing from God. So they craved this blessing. And, and within the city of Ephesus, again, an influential city, people would go in into uh, worship at this temple, one of the seven wonders. But also throughout the city, there were all sorts of gods, false gods, and false goddesses that were worshipped. And, and people craved God's blessing. They they didn't know it was God. They were trying to get God's blessing by way of worshiping an idol. But the city would be identified as a place of, of idol worship. Because of its influence and because of its affluence, people wanted to go there. People, um, you would even be able to go in and see the influence of this. If you're to do a study of the seven churches in Revelation, there are seven churches that are referenced. The first one is Ephesus because the importance within that part of the, of, of the world at that time is all of the letters, of the, the, the seven letters of the seven churches in Ephesus, uh, around uh, the Mediterranean Rim, they began in Ephesus because Ephesus was the epicenter of the things that were happening at that time. So knowing this, it's not that much of a surprise as to why God would send a letter and send particularly a man, which you'll hear about in the weeks to come, Paul knew these people in the church, and he knew this city so well. These weren't strangers to him. They were friends to him. They were, they were not mere acquaintances. This wasn't just a random letter that he's sending to encourage some people because he heard some things were going on. He knew of the temple. He knew of the idol worship. And he also knew that because of the idol worship, there would be such a temptation that these people would not know who they are in Christ. So he unpacks the first part of this letter of helping them to identify what their identity is in Christ. And the challenge that they would be dealing with, and the same challenge that we deal with today, is they were citizens of heaven, but they were also citizens in Ephesus. So how does one live a life in the midst of knowing that their, that their eternal home is in heaven, that they're that they are people of the kingdom of God and yet still living here on earth in, in Ephesus or here as it pertains to us, how would we apply these truths right here in Taylorville, in Epana, in Christian County, and in neighboring cities around us? So this letter becomes so important. It was so important to what John Stott said, and I put this in the worship guide that you have. It's the top part of the tear-off that Brian talks about every Sunday, except when he's gallivanting the world doing missions work. Uh, and this is what John Stott said. 
He said, Ephesus is today the most contemporary book in the Bible since it promises community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in a place of alienation, and peace instead of war. If there was something that God could offer us today, it would be these three things. Community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in a place of alienation, and peace instead of war. When I read that quote from one of the commentaries that, that he wrote about the letter of Ephesus, this was a watershed moment for me because I was so taken back and I said, God, I'm so glad that you prompted us to sit in this letter. And by the way, he prompted us to be in this letter six months ago. And yet I just read this quote a couple weeks ago. So it's so important that of what it is that God is doing right here in the letter of Ephesus, and it pertains so much to us right here where we live. As we have, it seems like, one foot in heaven and also one foot on earth, and how in the world do we live a life that honors God in the midst of our world today? I invite you to open up your Bible to Ephesians 1. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you're not going to be able to speed through and find it on, uh, on a your phone or device, I want you to know there are Bibles under your seats spread throughout there. If you don't have a Bible at home, I welcome you to not only use that Bible today, but take it home with you. Just consider that a gift to you. But those Bibles are there, and I'll give you just a moment to open up to Ephesians, and I would love for us to be able to read this together. What's so cool about this particular passage is specifically verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek language, this was actually one long sentence. So I know some of you are like, maybe you teach grammar, or like you're good at grammar, like English, and you're like, how in the world do you do that? Well, we consider that one gigantic run-on sentence. That's what we would consider it. But in Greek, it made perfect sense. And in our English translation, it's, it's not going to read like it's one sentence, but it really was in that original language. But consider it in this way, especially when we get to verse 3. When you get to verse 3 all the way through verse 14, it's like, it's like an avalanche of peace and hope. It's like an avalanche of truth. It's like this avalanche that it just bestows upon us a proper understanding about identity. Because it starts at the top and just continues to build 202 words in the Greek language from verse 13 to 14 and just continues to build until you get this, oh, this blessing in verse 14. Let's read all this together, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, He's the author. He's claiming authorship here. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the beginning of the avalanche. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. 
and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, that's in Christ, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to have hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me now? Father God, I pray that you would just honor the preaching and delivering of this message, God. And I pray that you would would speak through me, that you would not uh, allow me to speak out of the flesh or just out of my own mind, but... But God, I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to be united with the Spirit when I'm bringing about this message so that we can see the the depth, warmth, and comfort of your grace and your mercy and your truth as we discover who you are and what you have for us in this passage. And I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I've already unpacked a little bit of of the church in emphasis, in Ephesus, excuse me, as to what is going on. And if I were to simplify uh, the, the letter of, of Ephesus, I keep wanting to say emphasis. Um, I'll say it again probably. Don't judge me, just laugh. That's fine. I'll laugh with myself. But if I were to, to maybe just to simplify, oversimplify this letter, I would say what the letter of Ephesus says is this. We are blessed... Together and living victoriously. That we, we're blessed individually and collectively together and we're living victoriously. One of the ways that I know this to be true is right at the beginning of this, of this particular letter, we see right in verse 1, Paul says he identifies himself as... as authorship of this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, he's saying, this isn't something that I just dreamt up or just a cool idea I have that I'm just going to like dole out letters to these people because they maybe, because they're friends. He's like, no, he considers the work that he's doing as part of the will of God. That God is directing the, the authorship of this letter. And I believe that God is actually not only directing it God is actually authoring this through Paul. That this is part of the infallible word of God. That is wholly true as it sits. But second, he identifies the audience to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, he's talking about the saints in Ephesus. We're going to dig into this a lot more in just a moment. He says to the the saints in Ephesus. Saints, identifying who they are. In other words, they have one foot in heaven. Their identity, their identity is in Christ, and yet they're also at Ephesus. 
but he identifies them as saints. My question for you is this. Do you identify yourself as a saint or a sinner? Do you identify yourself as saints or sinners? Okay. Both. Um, I, I want to explain to you what it was that Paul was getting at when he said saints. But first, I want to just say this briefly. If part of your identity is that you just settle on that you're a sinner, then your identity is going to only be known by what you've done wrong or the fact that you are wrong instead of what God is doing inside you. Instead of actually who you are in Christ. So it wasn't a trap question because this is something that I, I've noticed over years of ministry. There's a lot of people who settle in one category where I'm just a sinner. And what we typically mean when we say that we're just sinners is this, that we're not worthy of God's best because we're simply sinners. And we, we, we kind of like, we live our life and we say we're just sinners and we live our life kicking rocks just waiting for, for Jesus to take us home instead of living victoriously in Christ. You see, both things are true. We are sinners, but yet if you're, if you're in Christ, that also means that you're a saint. But the key is this. Where is it that you get your identity from? You should get your identity from, well, how does Paul identify the church in Ephesus? He says to the, what, it, right in the middle of verse 1. Somebody help me. To the saints in Ephesus. So saints are sinners. In a reel on a social media feed uh, just a few weeks ago, I heard this story, and it illustrates, I think, what um, I would like for us to, and I long for us to, to grasp about what Paul's getting at, and this is what the message was from the real. He says, there was a young man out of Wichita, Kansas, who was flunking out of school, he's hanging out with the wrong crowd, and he's going nowhere quickly. The kid promises his mom that he will take his SATs in May of his junior year of high school. He takes the SAT, and to his surprise, he gets a 1480 out of a 1600 on the SAT. I don't know if you know, that's pretty good. As a matter of fact, if you get a 1400, anything above 1400 or above, you're considered a genius. So his mom hears that he got a, four, that he got a, a, a 14, uh, let me get the story right, a 1480, and his mom said what every other mom would say, did you cheat? <laughs> He told his mom, he says, I didn't cheat. I promise I didn't cheat. Because of this, this revelation, he stops hanging out with the troublemakers and he starts hanging out with the smart kids. He actually decides to go to class. He changes his behavior and he actually continues to go to class. The teacher notices and says, wow, you're pretty smart. The kid actually graduates high school. He graduates from a junior college. He graduates from Wichita State. And then he, he continues his education into uh, getting a degree at an Ivy League school. He continues on. And not only does he graduate, he graduates with honors from that school. He becomes an entrepreneur in the magazine industry. And he makes millions of dollars. That's a really cool story, is it not? His life is going nowhere, but yet he finds out something, and then his life turns around and he goes somewhere. But the story doesn't end. Doesn't end at all. Because 
Sure, in that moment, his identity changed to his behavior changed. But 13 13 years later, he would get a letter in the mail from the people who put on the SAT. And they had some startling news. He opened up the letter. And it said, periodically, we review uh, different SATs and when people take the SATs. And it says, uh, unfortunately, um, you didn't score a 1480. You actually scored a 740. But you see, his whole life changed when he started acting like he was a 1480. Because his life changed the moment that he took on the new identity. May that be true of you and I today. When we allow the word of God to soak into us, to neither identify ourselves as sinners, but instead identify in the way that God would want us to as saints. And let that identity mark the rest of our behavior. So the belief as to what what God is doing in us and through us, may that continue Because our new identity is sainthood. Our new identity is sainthood. This is what Paul is talking about to Ephesus and many other passages. I'll support this with in just a moment. See, sainthood has actually been co-opted by Catholics. And I I love many Catholic people, not Catholicism, but many Catholic people. Um, But that whole term has been co-opted. And it's been co-opted to mean something that it actually is not that actually is beyond the scope of the Bible and more into tradition. As a matter of fact, the process of Catholicism, within Catholicism to be a Catholic saint is, is loosely this. This is my version of it. You can look this up later. So there's 10 steps. The first step is you have to be a Catholic. So I'm already out because I'm not. I don't want to be. I'm out. So the first step is be Catholic. Uh, and the second thing is to die. So even if you're like, you just, you're like, you don't even get to enjoy it if it becomes true of you. The third is, after you die, a, a local groundswell of devotion forms around you based upon you, your life. So then the people start making this memorial. They start talking about you, thinking about you, and honoring you. And then maybe they want to start venerating you and lifting you up. Then your life gets investigated Some guys with really cool hats show up with clipboards asking some questions like, what was his life like? What was their life like? What what did they say? What did they do? What did they not do? What kind of person were they truly? And then they put it all in a big folder. Then after the clipboard's filled and they take it out of the folder, and if there's enough there, then they take you to step five. Step five is then you go to the local bishop. Then they go in and they investigate. And maybe, I don't know if they have like a magnifying glass. They investigate to see if you're worthy of sainthood. Then it goes all the way to the Vatican, which is in Rome, Italy. Guys with bigger hats. Look at it. See, you can always tell who's in charge by the size of their hat. In between step five and step six, this is where the wheels really go off. Like we just, we, it goes off really quickly because I mean, you're already dead and all these things are happening. Notice this. And verse 6 is this, or excuse me, number 6, not verse 6. No Bible around this, by the way, sorry, not to confuse you. After that, people start praying for a post-mortem miracle. They start praying that you, as a dead person, will bring about a post-mortem, that means you're dead, miracle. And that you would show up on earth and maybe that you'd answer somebody's prayer, maybe somebody would get healed in your name or some miracle happens in your honor. Again, the wheels are completely off at this point. Number seven, 
not to be confused with verse 7. Number 7 is this. Then the Vatican investigates the miracle. So then the guys with big, big, big hats that are colorful, I guess, they show up with more clipboards to authenticate the miracle that supposedly happened in your memory and honor after your death. Number 8 is this, and we're in the home stretch. I'm tired just talking about it. Um, they declare you blessed at this point. If they can back up all these things and then the committee gets together and they say, ooh, this is true, however they would speculate all these things. And then number nine is they pray for another miracle just to make sure that the first one wasn't a hoax. And number 10, ta-da, you're a saint. Again, I didn't use the Bible for any of that because that's not rooted in the Bible. Instead, what the Bible says right here in verse 1 in the middle, it says, to the saints, and these people were alive. Amen? So the saints are holy ones. The, the word saints is the word hagios, identifying with holy ones. In the Old Testament days, the tabernacle, the temple, and the Sabbath and the people themselves were holy as they were consecrated to God or set apart for the service of God. And in the New Testament, things change a little bit to where it's not just this select group of people, and it would only be this group of people. We see this expand in the New Testament, and it goes beyond the Jews, and it goes into the Gentiles, and the church swells, and now other people are invited in, even if their ethnic basis is not Jewish. My point in, in explaining the difference between what being a saint is and being considered a saint is this. I want you to know that God delights in his saints. God delights in his saints, in his holy ones, in his hagios. Psalm 16.3 says this, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight, is what God said. Romans 8.27 says this, And he... Who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And also at the beginning of the letter to the church in Rome, in Romans 1.7, it says this, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Saints are to live lives worthy of their calling. A lot of supporting passages here. I'm going to write down these references. I want you not to just have a shallow understanding of the Bible, but I want you to have a deep understanding of the Bible. Saints are to live lives worthy of their calling. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12 says this, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. And later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy, hagios, people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of these, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Preach through that later on. Saints also have a responsibility to one another. Again, borrowing from what Paul said in Romans twelve thirteen. He said we need to share with people in need and we need to practice hospitality. 
So we as saints have a responsibility one to the other. If we see someone in need, we should be meeting that need. That doesn't mean that if you see the need that you come to the church office so that that you pass that off unto somebody else. That means if you see the need and you can meet the need, meet the need and praise God, you don't have to tell anybody else you did it. Not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Giving God the glory and not trying to steal the credit. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 says this. Now but the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will be, will, no collections will be made, will have to be made. Saints are also protected by God. Praise God. That the saints, the people, the, the holy ones, the hagios, were protected by God. Psalm 97.10, let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Praise God that he does that. Proverbs 2.8 says this, for he guards the course of the just and he protects the way of the faithful ones. Saints are protected by God. You see, all believers are saints because God has already set them apart. When God uses the the type of words of elect, like in this passage and in others, in in a way God is saying, I've set you apart from everyone else. But yet when he also talks about the word predestined, not only is it elect, meaning you're elect for salvation, but you're also predestined to do something with the salvation that God has given. So, we're in partnership with God because God has set us apart. Paul is using this holy language to usher his people into unity and purpose, not because of who they were, but because who God is making them to be. Because he's called them out to be blessed together and living victoriously. It's an amazing thing. The idea of blessing or, or just the word bless can be confusing. I'll tell you a story. It was definitely confusing for a gentleman that I met on the Appalachian Trail. I was hiking with my son years ago, and we, we loved to hike on the Appalachian Trail, and there were certain places where there was usually a water source or a shelter. That's where most people would kind of cluster up after a, several hours of hiking and just take some rest and together. And it was one of these particular days, and I, if, I, if my memory serves me correct, that we were hiking along the, the beautiful part of the trail. It was very wide, and, and there was just a little bit of a meadow, and there was just a stream going to the left of us, and there was somebody who was trout fishing. It was beautiful. It was like everything you would think in the mountains. It was in this moment. And there's this, this man who's there. He's with some other guys. And, and before we even walk up to the guy, we can just hear this guy. He's loud. And we, he's just spouting off all sorts of curse words. I mean, all the four-letter ones, he was getting them right. He, was, he had a dialed in up to 10. He was just like, it was just crazy. It's like, what is this guy's problem? I'm like, dude, relax. You're on the trail. Enjoy it. Look around, you know. Um, so he's just kind of going off. And, and then we, we, just by nature of consequence, we, we just go there and we're kind of standing. And he's still like spouting off all these words. And we're feeling uncomfortable. And then felt more uncomfortable because he stopped using those words. And then he starts talking to us. And I'm like, wow, this dude's got anger issues. And we're about to get the, the brunt end of this. 
So he's sitting there having a conversation, and he's still, like, mad about something. He's cussed a few times. And, and then it's just like he's, like, red-faced and just the whole thing. And then he, he, I don't think we ask him, hey, where are you from? It's common language on the trail. What do you do? Common language. And he said, where are you from? We told him where we're from. And then moments after that, I was, I was very surprised because moments after that, I, he asked me, he says, what do you do for a living? And his first words were so surprising to me. He said, God bless you. I was like, what? I'm like, that's a five-letter word, not a four-letter word, okay? Like, I, I was familiar with what you said. I mean, I was in the Navy. I kind of like, I understand those words. And now you use the word bless. You see, I think for us, so many times in our culture, we just kind of throw words around without actually any meaning or like true understanding of them. And this guy truly didn't understand that word because he's like, God bless you. His whole demeanor changed. He's like, he got holy and upright and stood up. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, you're a horrible actor. Like, for real, you are. And I also think that when we use the word blessed, even in America, we tend to think like consumers. Because I think when most Americans hear the word blessed, they think they are receiving something. So I think even as most Americans, we've been just maybe even led to, to think more like consumers. Like we live this life that it's, it's for us. We come to church and it's for us. And we, we, we get in, in a group because it's for us. And because I have stories to share and I need this and I need this and I need this. You see, when I think when most Americans hear the word blessed, what they're actually thinking automatically is about wealth, money, clout, things, influence, and that influence leading to popularity and status. Because it's part of the American way. You work hard, you get more, you get more advancements, and if you work less, you receive less. Isn't this part of the American way? And some would say today it's becoming part of the American myth. You see, God uses the word blessed in a completely different way. Because when God uses the word blessed, it's to shape citizens of heaven to be contributors, not consumers. Because as, this, as the word of God reveals to us here, when, when Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he starts marking these things out that God has done for us, not that we have done for ourselves. Notice what it says in verse 4. He chose us in his name before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his will and pleasure to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in advance, to be put into effect when the things will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Did you see the emphasis that Paul put in the passage? It's not you. It's God blesses because God likes to bless 
And he also will go through in this letter and talk about the type of person who receives God's blessing because God does want to bless. You see, people are blessed when they receive his blessings, his blessings. And God is blessed when he is praised for all the blessings that he freely bestows on humanity and on his world. It's a cycle. Blessings come from God. People receive the blessings. They give God the praise and honor for those. And God is blessed when we receive them, when the blessings are actually doing what they're supposed to. You see, the the blessings of the Old Testament, for in large part, they actually had to do with the earth. They were about land and long life and prosperity and peace. A passage you can read later from Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, you'd be able to see these things. Talking about if, if they were obedient, Israel would have a good harvest and abundance of cattle and sheep. And they would have leadership among the nations. And while that is true, that, there are, that Jesus does talk about some material things. In the New Testament, however, the blessings are, are mostly spiritual. They're about redemption, forgiveness, receiving the Holy Spirit, inheritance, adoption, wisdom, and understanding. Being elect, being chosen, being predestined. All these words offer the spiritual blessing that God is talking about in this passage. Let's go quickly and talk about some of the present blessings. Present blessings. Right here in this passage, one of the blessings is the fact that God has has chose us for salvation. You may say, well, I thought I chose to follow Jesus. Well, you simply respond to what God put into motion. You simply respond when someone submits their life to Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has gone first to convict that person of sin in their life and at the same time recognizing that they need a Savior. So it is Jesus... And the Holy Spirit in God's love then that, that speaks into our souls that, that lets us know that we need a Savior. And we simply follow what God has initiated. So the present blessings, it is, it is election as John Calvin would he said. He said this is the foundation and first cause of all blessings. John Stott, in his commentary, said some things that that we need to understand. He says, the doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. According to the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of the nations of the world to be a special people. According to the New Testament, he has chosen an international community to be his saints, his hagios, to be his called out ones. The doctrine of election is, is an incentive to holiness, not an excuse for sin. It's not an excuse for sin to say, well, you know what? God chose me. I got saved, so now I can just live the rest of my life the way that I want to. As a matter of fact, if someone does that, they're actually not even living in the gospel at all. The doctrine of election is an incentive to holiness, Knowing that God has, has plucked us of, out of a life of sin and, and that, that our story no longer ends with death in the grave. And eternal damnation that God has plucked us out and now he's elected us to be saved and to live a life that is 
spiritually prosperous, offering the fruit of the Spirit as a guide for us, and the Word of God as a guide for us to live our lives. These are incentives for holiness, never an excuse for sin. Lastly, the doctrine of election is a motivation to humility, not a ground for boasting. It's not to say, well, I'm better than them because, you know, I, I either go to this church or I'm part of this denomination or, or I got saved or I'm part of this generation. This isn't a matter of boasting. It should be just a motivation for humility to say that God himself out of his love elected, predestined me to be saved. Never to be an excuse for sin, but to further get to know the Savior. God has predestined that believers would be adopted into his family so that we could be about the family business, the kingdom of God. To be about the family business, the kingdom of God. The future blessings are these. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 our passage and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment in other words future to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ so what is it that we're supposed to do if God has has pulled us out of a life of sin and he's placed us as his, his elect. He's predestined us. He's, he's called us. He's uniquely gifted us. His love overwhelms us. He, he's given us a path and purpose for our life. Like, what is it that, that we need to do with that? If I could simplify it, I'll just end with this, this phrase and let this be the guide for you this week and in the weeks to come. Rights and privilege bring truth and responsibility. Rights and privilege of being called sons and daughters of Almighty God and all the things and that avalanche of grace and hope and truth from verse 3 to 14, it should bring about a truth and a responsibility according to that truth. This is one of those passages that a lot of people stumble over because the words that I mentioned, and there's a lot of people who avoid these words because they, maybe they think the consequence of those words. But until we actually soak in the Word of God, even in the uncomfortable truths, until we're able to do that, we won't see the depth and breadth of the gospel ringing true in our life. Would you stand? I wrote this out, and before I pray, I want to, I want God to maybe use this, this thing that I've written for us to understand maybe even how far the application of this truth goes. He chose us to be his examples of righteousness on earth. 
bringing the gospel to our city and government officials in the political realm, bringing the gospel to our work, affecting ethically how we do our jobs, bringing the gospel to the nations, to our city, to our neighbors, to our families. That's mission. And in all these things, suffering well for the cause of Christ. Because God didn't choose Christians to stay the same. He chose them to live a kingdom ethic and to be about the kingdom of God. Is there some part of your life that just doesn't measure up with what God wants for you? Is there some part of you that you're maybe you're just, you're so encouraged, you look at this passage, and maybe for you there's all sorts of dots that are being connected, and maybe you just feel like you're just fueled up and just ready to go. You know, in both scenarios, and they're drastically different, are opportunities to respond to what God's doing. At the end of the service, when, when we say that the altars are open, it isn't just for those who are needing prayer. It's also for those who are offering praise. One of the best things we could do is just go before God and say, God, I identify this moment. It's a holy and set-apart moment. I realize what you're doing, and God, I commit my way to you. What is it that he's wanting to do and that he is doing in your life? Is there an area you need to repent of? Is there something you need to celebrate? In anything and in all things, follow through and you'll find God there. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the inspired word of God. Thank you for uncomfortable truths. Thank you for the comfort of the spirit. Thank you for your careful instruction written in the Word of God. Spirit of God, help us today. Intercede on our behalf, even if we don't have words or understanding. And God, if there's someone in here, maybe they're a brother or sister, and, and they need to praise you, or they just need to pray to you and ask you something, God, give them the courage to come forward. And God, if there's somebody who's right now in this moment, that they would just say, you know what, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a holy one. I'm not a saint. I'm still a sinner. I haven't, I haven't asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. They need the redemption that was talked about in this passage. God, allow them the courage, supernatural courage to come forward, to talk to me. I'll be right here at the front. Others would love to pray as well so they could be set free, have a whole new life, whole new way of living. In Jesus' name, amen.